The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop. Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. So the Houndsman XP podcast, Steve and I sit down with Jared Moss for another installment of Training Our Hounds. We talk about in-depth uh, collar conditioning, e-collar uses, and we really boil it down to the most simple ways for you to get the most out of your hound using an e-collar. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. Uh, before we get to our episode we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, W Hunting Supply. Uh, during this time, I know that things are tight, but remember all the things that DU has done for your state organizations and uh, all the things that they put back into preserving, promoting, and protecting our hound hunting lifestyle. So reach out there, support a small business that has supported you. Also, we want to give a shout out to Freedom Hunters. Our friends at Freedom Hunters are still out there every day uh, looking for opportunities to pay back to America's heroes. From field to field, Freedom Hunters is supporting Americans' veterans by getting them outdoors and reconnected with uh, outdoor adventures. So, recently, their big fundraiser down in South Carolina was shut down due to the national emergency that we're facing together as a country. But without that funding, Freedom Hunters is going to struggle to get our veterans back out there in the field. So I strongly encourage you to reach out there to Freedom Hunters. You can find a link to Freedom Hunters to make a small donation. No donation at this point is too small. But you can find that link on our website at www houndsmanxp.com while you're there you can also find our patreon page and uh, you saw a video this past week from steve explaining a little bit about what patreon is we've got some people that have signed up for as patreon supporters but uh, go in there and check that out it's going to be a real easy way that you can support houndsman xp for one dollar per episode right now we try to bring you the best in 
hound sports and, and this lifestyle. And we want to continue to do that. And we do that by listener support, by your support. And if you go into our website, find the Patreon page, check it out. We're sending out Houndsman XP gear to our patrons and rounding up great prizes and things that we will be using as monthly drawings for our Patreon patrons. So it's a great way for you to support that a dollar a show that will help us meet our needs to keep this podcast ad free as much as possible for you so you're not listening to commercials but uh, we really are dedicated at houndsman xp to preserve promote and protect our lifestyle and we will continue to do that for free on all the podcast platforms but if you feel like you can support us we surely would appreciate it Without any further delay, let's get into this podcast. You want me to do my Ed Sullivan routine right here on our shoe? Really big. Let's just really big Jared Moss. And the recording is running, and that's going to stay in the episode. (laughs) Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast, everybody. You just heard Steve Ed Sullivan Fielder. Uh, introduce our guest Jared Moss today and uh, we're really happy to have Jared Moss back on the on the podcast uh, Jared came down and hunted with us in the on the Navajo Nation for our freedom hunters hunt we're going to talk about that a little bit and uh, we're going to talk about some e-collar basics in this in this episode and we're going to talk about uh, prepping for this time this this uncertain time that we're living in right now with the COVID-19 coronavirus whatever thing that we've got going on right now and we're not trying to belittle that because I think there's a golden opportunity here to talk about that sort of stuff but uh, Steve how are you today? Well I'm doing great Chris Uh, really good hunkered down down here in the swamp Uh, you know self-quarantining and uh, uh, you know just sipping iced tea and uh, and uh, watching, uh, you know, videos and uh, thinking about all those good times I had last fall and looking forward to to the upcoming hunting season. Just uh, going to get the old kayak out in the Gulf of Mexico here and see if we can uh, uh, rip some lips on some redfish and speckled trout and, you know, just living the life. Everything's good. You know, I've been preparing for this social distancing my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I, I, you know, it's a, uh, it is a, it is a, a serious thing. I'm not really worried about getting sick. Um, I'm, I'm uh, more concerned about financial, financial uh, ramifications and and things like that. But I still think there's a, a really good opportunity for us as a hunting community to step out there. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but you want to talk to our guest or we're just going to leave him hanging? Uh, you know, we've got him there. He's been pretty gracious to come on today. I think we probably ought to hear what he has to say. Don't you? Yeah, I do. Jared, do you remember, do you remember what episode, uh, you were on the first time when we did the first podcast with you? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I, I know I, no, I don't. I don't remember which episode. Time goes by so fast. It's 
for one day to the next. But uh, no, me and Emma are just hanging out here in, in uh, Good Old Beaver, Utah. Sitting by the fire this morning because the wind's blowing, but we're excited to be with you guys. Yeah. It was episode 35, Chris. Okay, thanks. 35. Was, you were quicker on the trigger than I was. I was looking it up myself. So if you want to get uh, the initial information that Jared had for us, then go back and re-listen to episode 35, and that gives you an idea of some of the ground ground training basics and stuff like that. Um, G- Jared, I think, give us, give us a recap real quick of um, what you do out there in Beaver, Utah. Yeah, we, uh, we're a full-time uh, gun dog training facility. We also breed full-time. Uh, our main focus is on the German short hair pointer uh, from a breeding aspect and the American Brittany. And then we train full-time for the public. Um, mostly pointing dog breeds is what our main focus is on. We do a handful of retrievers every year, mostly for upland hunting. Um, but on a day-to-day operation, uh, we make a living training and breeding bird dogs and uh, it's our passion my whole family's involved in that i have four kids and kobe and kyson and kindley actually have their own individual dogs that they're working at this time um Ashley's involved in the day-to-day operations with the bookkeeping it's our whole family event and uh, it's you know i when i was 17 i was the guy that was uh, researching pedigrees and uh, out training my dogs and all my buddies were chasing girls so <laughs> i've been doing this my whole life i've been i've been social distancing since i was 17 and, <laughs> and i still love it today you know yeah yeah and i've i've been out there and i've met your family stayed with you overnight you you put me up one night you put my dogs up for me a couple nights when we were out there on that uh western tour and and i'm forever grateful for you for that jared you've got a great family i enjoyed just your whole dynamic there is is uh pretty special yeah we enjoy having you. the door is always open always yep i appreciate that and, and you know that if you if for any unknown i can't see why you would want to come back to indiana but if you would ever decide <laughs> that you want to come to indiana then then the same goes for you no seriously uh you know we're lucky right here especially in these current times, uh, our closest neighbors a half mile away. Um, if, if something would happen and we would get quarantined, you know, I've got, I've got several hundred acres here that, that I can roam around on and, and never see another soul. So, uh, plus the coon hunting is pretty daggone good in Indiana. That's why everybody wants to come here and coon hunt. So same goes for you, Jared. I'm going to take up on that offer. I just want to come out there and see those coon dogs hunt. It's it's totally different. I think and you and I talked a little bit about this when we were in Arizona. Um, you know, just just the way that you ran jazz, the way you brought her up to the, the front of the line there and, and uh, unclipped her, and, man, she just cast it straight out. You know, the whole, the whole mindset and the whole way that you train, operate your hounds is just a little bit different than the way that we do it. Um, the way I've been taught out this way. So I mm-hmm. think it's a, a great opportunity to, to get more information and come out there and see those coon dogs cast out there five, 600 yards and strike and run a coon. Yeah, come on. Come on. If you want to see some really good dogs, uh, come on down here, uh, <laughs> Jared. <laughs> you know, Chris, 
Chris is a good gateway to coon hunting, but I can show you, you know, the, <laughs> no, seriously, seriously, it's all fun. I thought Chris was going to lose his chamber of commerce card there at first talking about Indiana in a negative way, but he round <laughs> rebounded nicely, recovered nicely there with the talking about the good coon hunting and, uh, oh, yeah. and also, yeah. Yeah. I, sometimes I get awful. I, I, I get very envious of people that live out West that have access to millions of acres of public property and, and, uh, you know, just the lifestyle you guys leave lead out there and you live it every day. And it's, it's pretty, spe it's a pretty special place. And, and I don't know that a lot of, if, if somebody's never experienced it and, uh, they don't understand, they don't understand the difference. I think we're all guilty of saying, you know, being in love with where we, where we grew up to some extent. Uh, but, uh, I like adventure and I like seeing new things and I'm not afraid to, afraid to go. So I pre, I appreciate, appreciate what you're doing out there. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Jared, you came down and got involved with our Houndsman XP Freedom Hunters Adventure on the Navajo Nation. And, uh, we were glad to have you. We had a lot of fun up there and I cannot remember the name of that little bird you and I were we're over there looking for cats. Did you ever figure that out? I cannot remember where we were at either. I don't remember the little plateau and the valley that we were hunting over there. But we had a great time. I know we rolled our dogs up through there, just trying to to find some new country where those where we lost those few units that Calvin had had uh, previously soaked out. So we were trying to look out there and find what else was available. Well, we had a great time, man. I, I really enjoyed coming down to the Freedom Hunters. I think the whole organization, what they stand for, and the whole, you know, the whole idea of uh, thinking of somebody else besides yourself, and uh, that was that was just great. It was really fun to be down there and see Tanner and, and meet you guys face to face. Yeah, and we uh, we we encountered the the whole muddy road thing. We ran into the uh, the the Navajo herdsman. <laughs> up there on the remember <laughs> oh man she was herding those I, I, herding those sheep to, out there yeah we we came around that bend and we were going about three miles an hour in the mud and i looked up and saw the lady at the sheep and i thought holy cow if anybody knows where a lion does is that she would know and uh chris went right over there and started talking to her and she was pretty i think she was pretty nice to you but i don't Chris was asking her for some intel on the mountain lion population. Where, where, where can we find a cat? And she looked at him like, there's no cats here. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went about 100 yards further down the road, and sure enough, there was a cat track. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's like, well, yeah, maybe she just didn't want us there hunting the mountain lion. I, can't, I couldn't figure that out, really, because, you know, being a sheep herder, I think she would she would want us to uh, to be out there, but yeah, so the Many Farms was the name of the town just north of uh, um, Chin Lee, where we where we turned, and then west from there is where we were we were hunting up there in that yeah. that Rimrock country, and that was pretty intimidating itself. Some of those peaks and drop offs and and different things we had right there. We wanted to get a little further in in country before. Uh, before we got too crazy about getting dogs out and finding line tracks, because 
I didn't want to shear, shear those, uh, shimmy up those cliffs to, to get a dog off a of bay up. Yeah. Beautiful country though. And I know we had some time with Anthony and, uh, you know, I wish we would have, I wish I had more time, but that was yeah. just, just, um, you know, sharing a sandwich up there on the hill and taking those 20 minutes to take in that, the scenery and, uh, majestic mountains that we were available. I mean, it's just a beautiful part of the world down there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any, I think we all had a pretty good time, didn't we, Steve? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just to echo what Jared's saying there about Anthony, what a prince of a guy. Uh, you know, we met him that first night there as we did, uh, you, or as I did for the first time, Jared. Uh, we'd done the podcast together, but, you know, got to look over your dogs and talk about them some. And Anthony right away welcomed me down to his room and, I went in, sat down, talked uh, right away, warmed up to the guy. Uh, see, what a servant's heart, you know? I mean, this guy, he travels all over the country. He does a lot of this stuff. And I mean, the minute details. You know, he had a, <laughs> every anything we needed. Anthony says, well, I got some of that in the van. You know, right. and uh, right. I ate a lot of beef jerky or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh yeah, you know, definitely a guy that has a heart for what he's doing. And uh, just wanted to echo what Jared said about about Anthony. Of course, he's the CEO of Freedom Hunters. And uh, looking forward to seeing a lot more of that guy for sure. Yeah, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't give him too much praise. He's he he gets a pretty big head sometimes. So we got we got to keep him in check. <laughs> well, don't let him listen to this one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but Jared, so, so what can you, you go ahead, go ahead, Jared. I didn't mean to talk over you. Oh, there. I just, I was just, no, you're fine. I was just going to say, I sat down with Anthony that first night I was down there uh, in his hotel room and we had like a 45 minute conversation about freedom hunters and his, you know, what he's trying to do and the cause that he's after. And man, I, I could sum that guy up in one word. It would be humility. Just just True. a humble, humble, humble man. I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, he, he thinks of everybody else before himself. No doubt about it. No doubt about Agreed. it. Agree. So, so Jared, what was your, your, your impression? You got your first impression of Freedom Hunters there. And then what did you do with, with your experience that you got on that uh, pilot program for Houndsman XP, Freedom Hunters, Hound Adventure. You just recently engaged in your own adventure, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, we got home. Um, my dad is, is served in uh, the military for 27 years or 28 years. He was a mechanic, large, a large diesel mechanic, a uh, large engine diesel mechanic. He worked on tanks. He worked on howitzers. He worked on all that kind of stuff. And so as a young man, I was brought up. Uh, in a military home, you know, I, I distinctly remember standing in my dad's black boots when he would shine them. And, uh, you know, I always thought that was the coolest thing in the world that I got to stand in his boots while he shined them up and got ready for drill. And, you know, that's his uh, couple weekends a month. But he's been in the military, and that, through my dad's quiet service, he never really bragged about anything, but um, created a deep, deep patriotic uh, heart. 
and that that uh, that runs deep in my family. I'm very very appreciative of all those men who choose to protect our freedoms. And so I got home, and I it, you know that just ignited a fire in me. I want to be involved. I want to give back. And uh, me and my dad and my brothers were driving out to the expo. We were driving to the Western Big Game Expo, and we were going to go up and spend a day together. And I looked at my dad, and I said, hey, we're going to do a hunt. We're going to do one of these freedom hunts. We're going to do it right now. So I called Anthony Pace on the phone and said, hey, send me a hunter. And I'd already been thinking all these logistics through my mind. I mean, I had it prepared, right? So I yep. called Anthony and said, hey, we need a hunter. Uh, give us a hunter these four days, five days. And uh, me and my dad and my brothers and all the other hounds that I can round up, we're going to take this guy on an adventure. And uh, started right there, and Anthony went to work. And, man, he found somebody, and we brought Laramie and his father, Jay. Uh, they were here for four or five days, and five days, four days of hunting. And, uh, just had a great time. Fabulous time, great people, great men. Um, Laramie was in the Air Force for 14 years and did a phenomenal job. was deployed all over the world. And I got to spend four days with, with uh, a warrior. Um, and his father and my father was involved and my brother was involved and we had other houndsmen that donated their time and we had four days of just giving back and man, it was awesome. Like we could talk, we could have a whole podcast just about those four days. Yeah. It was a fabulous experience. So, so you took, you took the opportunity to spread the love around a little bit. It sounds like you made this a community project for beaver utah is that what i'm hearing absolutely i went to um one of the one of the gentlemen here that owns a cafe a restaurant and a hotel and uh his name's phil jolly went mr jolly and i said hey we're gonna have this uh veteran this uh gentleman come down would you be willing to you know give us a reduced rate or or maybe donate some hotel rooms he donated the whole stay uh he donated meals he donated you know, they were able to go over and eat breakfast every morning if they wanted. Um, he provided them food vouchers. Um, yeah, so he jumped right in. I jumped on Mountain Ops. I called Matt Davis at Mountain Ops and said, hey, send us down some of your hot ignite. We're going to be going hard for four days. Uh, we need some stuff that will keep us going and keep us hydrated, keep us alert, keep us going. So he sent us down some things. I uh, went over to Pyro Putty. Phone scope is actually uh, right here in Beaver, Utah, Cheston Davis. And I saw that. Whole family. Yeah. So I went over to one of their subsidiary companies, uh, Pyro Putty, that Will Bartlett runs for them. And I said, hey, Will, we're going to be on the hill. You know, I'd like to have some of this Pyro Putty in there and Jay's pack and in Laramie's pack in the event that anything goofy happens. And he said, absolutely. Um, and then I had, I had Houndsman reach out from you know, all over, well, within 100 miles of us here that are saying, hey, if that guy's going to be here, we'll go cut this part of the mountain. We'll go look for tracks over here. How can we be involved? You know, what can we do? So it was as, as, I, as big as I could make it in a short period of time. I tried to get as many uh, many people behind Laramie and his family as possible. And I think that's that's what the, the Houndsman community is most but the oversight is, oh, all we do is hunt. And the reality is, I don't know more, a more giving, tight-knit group of men that once you get them behind a cause, they will do everything. They will do anything. And that's just, you know, it was really neat. 
Well, we've we've talked talked about that before, Steve. I think you've talked about the patriotism in, that you've you've personally witnessed in your career with Houndsman. Yeah, uh, Chris. Uh, from the very beginning, you know, I have found that when called upon to step up, this Hound community definitely will do just that. Over my years of experience, I've seen many many instances people who've lost their homes in fire, people that are facing debilitating disease or even even terminal diseases and children that need help. And, and the work that the Coonhound community has done over the years in, in a benefit for St. Jude Children's Hospital and, and the Shriners Hospitals and all of these things. Uh, yeah, these guys like to hunt and they spend most of their time hunting. But when called upon to help, they'll put just as much energy in these kind of projects as they will in their hunting activities. I've seen that time and time again. So shout out to all the houndsmen out there uh, because uh, we really are a giving, unselfish community when it comes down uh, to the the brass tacks, for sure. And I, and I wanted to tell Jared's story with his, his experience with Freedom Hunters there because we kind of exposed, you know, the opportunity for Freedom Hunters, for Houndsmen to get get involved with Freedom Hunters. You can find out more information on our website at www.houndsmanxp.com. You go on the partnership page and there's a whole write-up there about, about what we're trying to do there. But Jared, I want to know... Did you ever think about the bigger picture or the 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 message that you were sending out by uh, being involved with Freedom Hunters? What kind of message does that send to the non-hunting community about who we are and what we do? Yeah, I I think I tried to look at that big picture um, as as much as you can. Right, look, ask the bigger question: what What is this? Why are we here? What are we all about? Not just uh, not just as houndsmen, but also as brothers and sisters, you know. And so I think um, I think the message is pretty clear, you know. There we're a community of, of people that are very passionate about being stewards of the land and being stewards over our brothers. And if there's a guy that's willing to pick up a, a gun and go across the sea, across the pond. And protect my freedom, then uh, I feel a debt. Just you know, I feel way indebted to that man. And so for me to be able to just spend four days and try to have a hunt with him, you know, I feel like I never even, you know, never really repaid him. But it was a way I could tell him thank you. And I think that's the hunting community. And it's just like back to what Steve said. You know, um, when it comes to it, when the rubber meets the road. These are the kind of guys you want on your side. They're the kind of guys that you want to help you figure out, hey, we're in a bind, man. Like, how are we going to figure out this water issue in this county? Or, hey, how are we going to figure out, you know, how to help these people? They're, they're in need of some food. These people are in need of shelter. These people are in need of, you know, you're going to go back to these guys that are stewards of the land and that are stewards of their brothers. And they're going to be there to help. And they've been taught to do that their whole life. Agree. That's a great message. And, uh, you know, we're going to skip around here a little bit and, and, uh, but we were going to actually talk about that 
especially in the the current situation in our country, you know, our our hunting community has the opportunity to be those people, the providers. If you look back to the the 1700s in our countries during the Revolutionary War and pre pre war times. Uh, these settlements in the Ohio River Valley here, places like Boone Station and and uh, Kenton Station, Boonesboro, all those places have what they called station hunters. And those station hunters were were the people, were the men who went out and hunted for food for that community. And everybody had had a job in that community. Some of them were vegetable growers. Some of them were uh, you know, tin smiths and copper smiths, and then you had the station hunter, and they were responsible for providing the meat for those those communities. And and Steve, you were telling me a story before we started here about a hunter that you know down in Florida that that has already made that offer during during this time we're living in right now. Well, actually, Chris. Uh, I was referring to Charlie Ayers up there in West Virginia. He's okay. uh, he's uh, uh, a bear hunter there, uh, happens to be a plot man, and that's how I got to know Charlie. Uh, but I, you know, he's now, uh, you know, posted a post on social media saying, hey, I've got a freezer full of bear meat that I'm willing to share with anybody that's hungry. You know, just get, you know, just message me, you know, I want to help any way I can. And then I saw our friend uh, Erica Froming from Wisconsin who was reposting uh, a message uh, of uh, an offer to provide food for children that may be uh, at risk. You know, a lot of kids, uh, my wife is in the uh, school system here in Florida, and a lot of these kids depend on those lunches and breakfasts breakfasts that they get at school as their main sustenance, you know, uh, they just don't really have much to eat at home. And I, right away I was concerned, you know, I said, Ella, what's going to happen to these kids if they're not going to school, are they going to be fed? And people are stepping up and, and people within the hound community are stepping up. And I was really proud to see that, you know, and, uh, that's a goes along with what you've been saying, Chris, about our golden opportunity here as hounds people to show, you know, our true colors. Yeah, and, and you know, we haven't. It's no secret we haven't. We've been fighting a uh, reputation problem or a public image problem. Uh, we fight it every day. We fight it in our legislative halls. We fight it on social media. We see all kinds of stuff coming down there, and there's people that want to end these freedoms. And I'm not kidding. This is an opportunity right now. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm I'm tired of seeing toilet paper memes on social media, okay? Yeah, it's funny. We've seen them all. It's time to move on. It's time to stop worrying about political conspiracy theories it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work and we've got the opportunity right now to to make that positive image and you know paradigm shift here we can shift that paradigm that person who may be looking or looking for answers about whether or not they support hunting and then a hunter shows up and says hey i'm willing to help i'm willing to provide for your family I can't think of another time in my lifetime or in any recent history where we've got such an opportunity as we do right now. 
uh, current day 2020 and we can show the world why hunting is important and why it's still important to have people out there who possess the skills in these times of need. Um, I just, I can't say it enough. If it were not for, for the people, someday we've never had an opportunity like this ever. What say you? Did we lose the whole call? No, I think it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for, for us to lead. It's a wake-up call for the hunting community to stand up and uh, shift that mindset from, I think Chris and I made this, you know, this conversation a little bit the other day about you know, the, the mindset of hunters are barbaric, cavemen running around doing crazy things. And the mindset shift could happen right now. We can stand up as hunters and say, Hey, we know, we know how to hunt, we know how to gather, we know how to fish, we know how to cook, uh, we know how to prepare the meat, we know how to preserve the meat, uh, we know how to go and catch some fish, let me teach you how to fish. Um, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's everything that we are, it's who we are, it's what we do every day. It's, it's so much a lifestyle that my six-year-old son wakes up and he's trying to all this flood of information is coming through, right? We don't have television at our home. So he gets what me and, me and Ashley talk about. And I shouldn't say that. We have television. We don't have uh, Dish Network. You know, we don't have the news on 24-7. Mm-hmm. So when we do turn something on and watch it, you know, he's trying to decipher all this. And my six-year-old son stands up one morning and we're cooking breakfast. And he looks out the back window and he sees there's about 30 mule deer sitting back there. And he says, well, Dad. I know we're never going to go hungry because there's a food, you know, there's the food right there. And I said, you're exactly right. I said, we're, we're never going to go hungry because we know how to, and, and it's not that we would go back there and kill every, all 30 deer. It's that we would manage those deer. We would be stewards over the land. We would be stewards over our neighbor. What a great opportunity to look over and see your neighbor and see if he needs a cup of sugar or he needs a cup of flour or he needs a hand lift in something. I, I think, if nothing else, I think this is a call to humanity to start being human again and start caring for your neighbor. I, you know, I I grew up in a neighborhood where all 20 or 30 kids ran around in this big old, we had a, we lived on a big bend in the road, and we all played out in the road, and you could literally walk into the neighbor's house and say, I need a glass of water or I'm hungry, and hit set up dinner and feed you right there. And I think we need to get back to that. I think that's an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, your dad lived through the Great Depression, if I'm not mistaken. It was he at that age or he would have been a kid yeah, at that time? Absolutely. He was born in nineteen twenty. Uh we would have celebrated dad's one hundredth birthday on the twenty ninth of January. And uh many, many stories came out of that. You know, they didn't really refer to it as the great depression and the fact that he was a survivor, but he would talk about the way things were back in those days. And it was exactly as Jared describes there, you know, neighbors helping neighbors. Um, You know, they didn't have any money. He did tell me that, but he said no one else did either. But he would always um, uh, add that we had plenty to eat because we either grew it ourselves, we raised it ourselves, or we bartered with the neighbors and so forth. 
and uh, and you know the whole community got along just fine. We didn't. We never went hungry. And uh, you know you hear the stories today about kids being unable to change a light bulb, and you really, I mean, you know, it's funny, yeah. And and they're we call them snowflakes, yeah. But it's really sad that we're not teaching. You know, and this is, again, is a golden opportunity for us to say, you know, hey, we a month ago, as you said, Chris, uh, yesterday when we were talking, you know, we didn't know about, you know, nobody was talking about coronavirus. Today, everybody's talking about it. Nobody knows where it'll go, uh, you know, and and we're, you know, we're not foretelling the apocalypse here. Uh, We're very hopeful and positive and and so forth, and and that this thing will be contained, and we'll move on with life. But we do need to leave uh, to learn these life lessons, and we need to teach the children, and we need to, you know, make sure because hey, uh, the when the supply line dries up, there's no other way but to provide for yourself. Right. And so, uh, you know, and I'm glad, you know, that my dad taught me how to grow a garden. He taught me how to, you know, skin a, a bear or a raccoon or in the extreme cases, a possum, which he said they would, my grandmother would occasionally say, hey, you boys catch a nice young possum, bring him in alive. We'll put him in a cage and fatten him up and we'll have him for dinner. And they did, you know, they'd cage him up, feed him corn, as they'd say, clean them out. Good. And that's something I never tried. I never went there, but I'm sure if I was hungry, I would. And um, so anyway, yeah, it, it's uh, things, uh, what goes around comes around, they say. Yeah. And, and uh, go ahead, finish your thought. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not tre- preaching any doom and gloom. I'm saying we have got an opportunity. And what a shame if we don't, if we don't cash in and capitalize on that opportunity right now to to step up and say hey world it's okay there's still hunters out here we can still feed you and we know how to do this we've been we have been we have been mastering this craft our whole lives and we're here and and there's no need to panic because we can feed you. You look at the North American model for conserva- conservation. That whole thing has been put in place and practiced for um, uh, over a hundred years now, and we've seen the biggest uh, uh, rebound of wildlife on our landscape since since the 1940s. There's no other success story in the world that matches it. It's all right here on our landscape, and if it gets to the point. The reason we need hunters is because we need somebody that can go out and gather those food, uh, those food stores, and we are it. We're here. We can do it, and I think we have the opportunity to bring calm, peace, and and some security back to our society. And that's that's basically you know uh, the whole reason why we we've talked about talked about this subject on the podcast. So. Don't panic and and make sure that you're you're putting positive things out there that hey, if anybody needs meat, I'm a hunter, I can provide for your family. Any follow-up thoughts on that? No, oh, it's all good stuff. 
You know, the last time we had this guy on, we forgot to do something, Chris. Do you talk, remember what that was? Talk about e-collars? <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. You know, we had a lot of requests for people to say, you know, well, man, I'm, where, where's the e-collar information? So, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we want, I think it's well, timely. I think, I think just, Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, jump just, in. Just to wrap up on, you know, we talked about this before the podcast, but just to wrap up on that whole self-preparedness thing, you know, it's something that um, the LDS church has taught for a long time. I, in fact, from where Steve's at, about 50 miles south of Orlando, there's 295,000 acres that is called Desert Ranches. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been there for 65 years, and it's a big cattle ranch. That they have 45,000 beef down there, and they teach, you know, they teach, they raise those beef for a profit, but they teach how to, you know, teach us how to be good stewards of the land, and that's something that I've been taught since I was a young man, is how to be a good steward, how to be prepared. I don't think you need to panic if you are prepared, and there's some resources that, I, you know, as far as the Mormon church goes, I think that's, that that's something that they teach and preach every day. And you can go to LDS.org. You can go in there. You can find their food storage little section, and it'll teach you how to start preparing. You know, the very first thing you need is a 72-hour kit. Um, and if you have that 72-hour kit and you have a three-month supply of food, then this kind of stuff pops up and you don't even panic, right? And I think that 72-hour kit, I was taught by my father, you know, in the military. And it goes back to this whole Freedom Hunters thing. We were back up on the mountain just this week with the freedom hunters last week and we had an opportunity to sit down and teach Tyson how to build a fire from scratch. We cheated and we used pyro putties, but we were prepared. We were prepared to do that on the mountain, right? We had our 72 hour bug out kit. And if you're prepared, you're not going to fear. And this panic stuff doesn't happen, right? You don't run to the grocery store to get stuff because you've got a three month supply of stuff sitting in your house. It's like no big deal when you guys are done panicking we'll we'll move forward right and i think that goes for you pull you pull that right into dog training right it's the same thing with your e-collar training for us to go grab the e-collar right now and slap it on a dog and just start pushing buttons and go well this thing's not working turn it up (laughs) and it's not working turn it up not working turn it up next thing you know you're on level 18 and the dog finally goes and you're like well it's working now and he's going what the heck was that like I've never had that stimulus before. And, and you the induce goes in your dog training. And you induce panic. And that, folks, is called yeah. a segue. Jared Moss <laughs> just yeah. pulled off one of the nicest segues in our podcast that I've ever heard. So, Jared, let's talk about e collars and let's talk about how we avoid that situation where uh, you know, you haven't done anything prior with the e collar. And all of a sudden, you've got a TT-15, you've not done any work on it, and you've got a dog running a deer or some other animal you don't want them to chase. And let's just walk through that. Let's talk about that. Let's have some tailgate chat yeah. about that. Um, number one thing about e-collars is think of an e-collar as a training tool. Um, it's a communication tool. And I think if you slap that communication tool on and just start on 18, when the first time that dog feels stimulus is, okay, we're setting him up. Here comes the deer. The deer's crossed the road. Okay, drive up there, drop this dog, got the e-collar on him. 
when he starts chasing, let him have it. Mm-hmm. And that that whole me- that whole methodology of training is completely wrong, right? What we want to do is take about ten steps back and go, okay, we taught this dog how to recall. When if you go back to our last episode, we taught this dog how to recall on on a leash or on a long line. And when I'm using the long line and I tug on the long line, I want to you know, use my ink collar to then give him a very small, low stimulus. And he goes, oh, that tug on the rope and a little bit of stimulus from the ink collar, those two things are kind of the same feeling. And if you do that repetitively, then the dog goes, oh, anytime that, that Jared tugs on the rope or he stimulates the collar on a real low setting, those two things mean the same thing. So if I do some prep work, I get that dog prepared mentally with the e-collar on a low stimulus, and then I go to start breaking off game. Then he goes, oh, this is this is what you're trying to communicate. The e-collar is just a rope with Wi-Fi capabilities. That's all it is. If you use it as a training tool, as a communication tool, it's the greatest tool that we've ever had. If you just slap it on there and start punching buttons and you don't know what you're doing, the dog's going to, their, their reaction is panic. It is, it's not that, that you're hurting them. It's they're going, what is that stimulation? Like, what is that sensation? And so their reaction, their body, their body says either, either I'm getting the heck away because I think it's you, Jared, or I'm going back to the truck because this is, I know if I go back to the truck, I'm safe. Or if I go underneath that truck, I'm even safer. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, I, um, before I get too far down it, but that's that's the whole mentality, right, is let's, let's prepare the dog with small, short levels of soft stimulation, one or two or three level. If you look at the Garmin Alpha, almost every dog I operate is on like a level two or three because I'm communicating a message that's already been taught. And the dog goes, oh, Oh, you just want me to come back. No problem. Oh, you don't want me to run that deer. Oh, oh, I'm supposed to get in the truck. Okay, cool. No problem. Mm-hmm. So it's just a communication tool to reinforce what's been done. So before I go any further, steer us in the right direction. Okay. So I have a question. So yep. as, as I'm out there and I'm, I'm and first question. Okay. Say I've got a dog that's two years old. I, I've tried to trash break this dog. I've probably I've probably done it wrong because I've never heard Jared Moss talk about e-collar training. Can I can I regain the confidence and things in that dog and retrain that dog to understand what I want? Give me just a little more depth what happened with the dog. Okay. At two years of age, you just slapped the e collar on him and shocked the crap out of him. Ever since, ever you know, it's it's there's been a few there's been a few issues there. You know, we're driving down the road. I know I've got a dog that'll run run junk, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to go out tonight and during the evening I'm going to find some deer in a field, and I've been doing that and and I can't seem to get the message. You know, now I'm got to the point where where when I drive down the road. And I I stop, and I try to send that dog. He's not even going hunting, you know, because he he's what what have I? Is there any hope for that dog at this point? Can I rebuild that dog? Yeah, absolutely. You can rebuild him. Um, 
hopefully what we try to do is get you on the podcast before you have that episode so that you don't have to go back and rebuild it. Um, did you guys, I you guys turned me onto that book by, by Van Johnson. Did you read in there? Do you remember old blue? Old, old blue. blue was a dog that was screaming. Old blue was screaming deer in his coon hunting ground. And every time he tried to go over there and, and, uh, run coons old blue would run by his dogs and turn it into a deer race and he thought he had the most broke dogs that he could find you know and train and all of a sudden old blue would blow by him and undo his whole race so mm-hmm. uh he went he went and got old blue and taught old blue to quit running trash so could the reverse happen yeah absolutely could i take the dog that's kind of shut down and reserved and build him back up you bet okay you bet one i'll give you one one tip that's worked for me is if you take on the tt15 and you take out the prongs out of that TP15 and just run just run it without the shocking mechanism, dogs are sensitive enough to feel that there is no prongs in his neck. And you're going to be, you're going to, that's one quick tip on a hunt. Just let's say you have a hunt where your dog's acting kind of quiet and shutting down on you. Mm-hmm. One quick tip is to take the prong, take the prongs out of the TP15 so you can't shock him even if you want to. And, uh, and, he, he will notice that that's out and that'll perk up his interest. But yeah, I, I think you can rebuild that dog simply by going back and doing some homework and going back to your groundwork that we've talked about in the last episode and introducing the e-collar in other situations. Okay. So if you keep going down that same road or that same hunting ground and you keep having the same experience, dogs are place learners and they're going to learn really quick. Hey man, every time I come out here, I'm just going to shut it down. This happens with bird dogs too. If we if we hunt in the same area and hunt the same game, and I'm and I'm hard on a dog, he knows when I drop the tailgate, we're in that same spot. He's gonna go, uh, crap. Really? I don't want to hunt today because I'm gonna make a mistake. Mm-hmm. If I make a mistake right here, I know I know what's gonna happen. Jared's gonna correct me. So dogs are place learners, and they learn through repetition. So yeah, if you've got a dog that's that's shutting down on you on a hunt. Step one, go back, do some groundwork, reintroduce the collar, get him used to the collar, put the dang thing on him for five days straight if you have to. Take the prongs out of it, put it on him, get him in the, in the kennel, out of the kennel, in the truck, out of the truck, in the house, out of the house. Go for walks until till he's not pay attention to the collar. Mm-hmm. That's step one. Step two, do some groundwork um, with that dog on lead. Give a little tug on the leash, give a correction on the collar, and so get him over the mental, the mental stimulant or the mental stigma of "oh crap!" Every time this collar goes on, or "oh crap!" Every time I go down this road, uh, Jared set me up to make a mistake, mm-hmm. and then I, and so instead of making a mistake, I'm just going to shut down and not do anything. Steve, you got something Still you want to add? Strong to- no, but I would just agree wholeheartedly with what Jared's saying from my experience. Had a dog named Bronco. Bronco, if he encountered an electric fence in an area, he was done with that area. You couldn't turn him loose in there anymore because he wouldn't go hunting. You could put him back in the truck and haul him a quarter mile down the road, turn him loose, and as, as if nothing ever happened. But I agree uh, with what you're saying, Jared, about them being, uh, you know, they they identify with certain localities. And uh, and uh, so that's just a little addendum to what you're saying. And I think think you're right on. So so we're taking a dog. um, We're taking a dog that that 
has been introduced to an e-collar. And and we'll recap this real quick. In that event, yeah, in the event he was introduced wrong, at the wrong age, at the wrong time, in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. If we went way, way back to step one, it would be like, hey, I got this eight-month-old pup, and I've been leash training him. Now I'm going to interlay the e-collar with the leash. Oh, snap, if I do it that way then the dog just understand it's just a communication tool. Mm-hmm. Let, let me, let me kind of throw in a, a little story to, to reinforce what you're saying. I've, you know, everybody by now, if they're following us on social media has seen Roxy, the rig dog, Roxy, the, the decoy dog, Roxy, the Carrie's house dog. Uh, she's my boxer and she's a crazy right. little dog that has to go with me on every adventure or she throws a fit. Uh, Roxy came here as an adult and had no clue. Uh, I don't know anything about her background. And, uh, Roxy is also the, the, she'll blow up that race, uh, with a pup. She loves to run deer with the pups. And so I had to get a handle on that because, um, she, she, I do enjoy having her with me, but, uh, I had to actually do some e-collar work with her and we were able to cut down on a lot of those distractions for my pups that Roxy was causing uh, by, by introducing her to the e-collar. So there are ways to do it, but let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about day one e-collar stuff let's go step by step and talk about uh let's assume that we've done the long line work we've done the recall work the pup is responding well to the recall and now we need to move on to that next step of putting that e-collar on the dog and and introducing him on that day one of e-collars we're going to do it right in this segment we're not going to wait until they're two years old and we haven't haven't right. spent spent the last eight months shocking him and having him hide under the truck and all that other stuff. Right. So I think, um, and I would I would introduce the e collar in, in a non non hunting scenario. When I talk to you know our dog, the the bird dog side dog training in general, it's like, hey, let's take this dog and do and go somewhere he's comfortable and he's used to. So dogs are place learners. Uh, we're going to, the first time we introduce this e-collar, it might be in your backyard. It might be at your hound, you know, your hound ground where you keep your dog or whatever. But I like to start on the lowest stimulation possible. A uh, great horse trainer uh, taught me once that you, you do you do the minimum amount required to get the job done. When you're halted breaking a horse, you don't crank his head over backwards. You use the minimum amount of pressure on that halter to get that horse to follow you. Same thing with your dogs. You, you use a minimum amount of pressure on that e-collar for him to perk up his ears and go, hey, what do you want? Oh, what is that? And then you that's your baseline. That's what you use to introduce um, stimulus. And typically on most dogs, if you – one step back even further. When you put this e-collar on your dog and, need, and you're in training, it needs to be really, really snug. Most people have it too loose, and then you get inconsistent contact on the dog's neck. Mm-hmm. When you get inconsistent contact, then you're the one fidgeting with the dial, 
and you go from one to six, and then finally it connects, and then the dog has that episode of panic. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure we're real snug. We want to introduce this in a non-hunting scenario, and then we want to introduce it in conjunction with the long line once we've got that. Then we're just going to go, one of my favorite things to do is we road dogs. And so when I rode those pups yesterday, I, every one of them got collared up. Dave Walker, who's a Hall of Fame dog trainer, he said, Jared, you go hunting, you put your boots on, you put your coat on. When you take these dogs out and you go to work, you gear them up just like you go to hunting. And so every time they come up to the truck, they get on their collar, they, they, learn, they learn from the very first minute they're coming out of their kennel or their chain, hey, I'm going to be a gentleman from here to the truck, and Jared's going to collar me up, put the e-collar on me. A lot of those young pups I had yesterday were, you know, under a year of age. I turned the e-collar on. I didn't use it, but it was on them. And they rode it yesterday with it on them. And that's a great way to introduce the e-collar on a scenario or a place that they're comfortable with. And then they're roading and they're minding on something else, and the e-collar's there. After they've had it on them for several, you know, months, and they've done the long line work, then we're going roading, and they're, it's on. And if we yesterday we, we ran two groups of deer in front of the pups, and the first group of deer that went across the road, all the pups lit up, and it was like, <laughs> okay, we need to shut, we need to shut this down, right? They all went about 500 yards or 400 yards and started barking, and carrying on. And I said, and all I really had to do was just stimulate a little, a few of the older pups a couple of times on two or three, and give them a little tone, and they went, oh, nope, not supposed to be doing that because I'd already done my groundwork. Hey, Jared doesn't want me chasing that thing. This isn't what we're out here after. And that was a perfect training scenario, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one way you could you could bring the e-collar in is in a roading scenario or maybe just a walk, just go for a short walk, but not a hunt. We don't bring the e-collar in for the very first time when we're out there hunting and the dog's all excited and the adrenaline's going and he knows. You guys know that your dogs know when you're going hunting. You load them up a certain way, you have a certain set of excitement, and you go to a certain location and the dogs know we're going hunting coons or we're going hunting bears or whatever it is. So where are you at on that, Chris? What questions? Yeah, so so when I've got the dog out there and I'm I'm working him on that long line, and I think everything you said is spot on. You know, I look at, at people like Russ Downey who take pictures of their dogs out in the yard with uh, chickens and, and their labs, and they're all laying in the yard or interacting in the yard together. Um, you know, those dogs know when it's time to loaf in the yard and when it's time to go. We've read accounts from the old days of the dog laying under the porch. He lays there all day. He was never tied up, but you come out and you holler him out from underneath the porch and he sees that you're, you've got, they, you know, you got your, they had their lantern in their hand and their rifle and that dog knows, oh, we're going hunting. Let's go. So the dogs are capable. And I can tell you, my dogs know from when I leave the back door and walk to the barn they know whether i'm going to feed them whether i'm going to town whether i'm going hunting and if i'm going hunting then things are get things get pretty lively around here uh everybody wants to go everybody's energy energy so uh full of energy and 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 standing at the gate and waiting on me to load them up and i try to do things the same way every time so that there is a method to what we do and they know exactly what's happening because um but let's take it back to i've got the pup out there we're working on a long line i'm t it's it's coming to me well when do i 
add that stimulus. I, I tug on the rope and add stimulus. I say, blue come, add the stimulus. You know, add the stimulus, blue come. When do, when do I do that? As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, REMAX Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. REMAX has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherald.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. We use the leather training collar. We talked about that in the last episode, and it has those little prongs on there, and it gets them used to that stimulus on their neck. But if you don't have one, just use a regular, you know, flat collar. But that's exactly what you do. If you were using a heel scenario or a recall scenario, those are the two easiest ones to start with. And if you're using recall and you've taught that dog to recall, and you say blue here, and you tug the rope at the same time you say here, and then you nick the e-collar simultaneously on the lowest setting. It's a, it's a nick or a momentary stimulation. It's mm-hmm. not a continuous. And you, you tug and nick at the same time. And you need to do that 100 times in 100 different locations. And people say, well, I can't go do 100 different locations. Well, yeah, you can. Just go in the truck and drive two minutes. Drive, go, in, go walk around the block and just change the scenario and change the dogs or place learners. You got to you got to do this in a hundred different places in a hundred different times. Once you've done that, he knows that the tug on the rope and the stimulus mean the same thing. And all of a sudden, he puts those two together. Now there's no panic. Mm-hmm. Now there's no negative connotation towards the e collar. He thinks in his mind, hey, a tug on the rope or a nick on the collar mean the same thing. If you do it that method. I've done it with that with thousands of dogs. If you'll do it that way, you, you eliminate the, the whole two-year-old that's frustrated and shutting down. Right. Because to him, it, it means the same thing. So we're doing everything simul- We're doing everything simultaneous. We're teaching a verbal command. We're teaching a, a physical cue with with the uh, the long line and the collar, and we are adding the stimulation with a nick. And we're doing everything simultaneously so that we get the reaction that we're looking for. And I think the point to be made there, as he said, you know, is you do it in a lot of different places because of the dogs. What's the term you use, Jared? 
um, the dogs identify with certain places? Yeah, dogs are place learners. They are place they learners. They are. I encountered I that. that yeah. Go ahead. I have a lot of guys that call me that are to say in the typical scenario is, "Hey, my dog acts really good at my home or my backyard, or maybe at this one location." And I go to the field, and I go, or I go to the woods, and I go hunting, and like he loses his mind. <laughs> he doesn't listen. He doesn't respond, and it's because mm-hmm. he's a used to those. He's used to doing the correct thing in those locations. When we used the field trial, um, you had to train on lots of different training grounds multiple times in multiple locations for the dogs to go, oh, it doesn't matter where the tailgate drops. The same rules apply. Okay, so I'm I'm seeing this scenario. And tell me if I'm on, on the right track here. I've got a pup. He's old enough that, you know, he should be being hauled and things like that. Uh, you know, maybe I've, I've gone ahead and I've, I've had enough foresight here because I'm, I'm listening to what Jared Moss is telling me. So I ordered a, a mini TT 15. Um, and, and so now, even though that pup is not physically able to go out and hunt and do things like that, I'm going to put that pup in one side of my dog box as I go hunting, as I go out here and I'm working older dogs and, and before or after I get back to the truck, every place I stop, I'm, I'm going to get that pup out with the long line, with the collar and with the e-collar on him. And I'm going to spend two or three minutes in that area working on recall when he's, when he's six to six to eight months old in that, in that area. I may not be adding stimulus. I may still be at the, at the tug on the rope and call stage, but now I'm, I'm being diversified in my places and it's something that's achievable for a hunter to do. We're talking about two or three minutes at the before drop or after a drop that that I can get my pup out there and actually do some beneficial work. Would that work? Perfect. Yeah, man, you're already, you're already going to go hunting. You're already going to go roading. So absolutely. Yeah, okay. I want to take one step back. Sorry, before we do, there's some nonverbal communication we need to talk about sometimes. But when we teach our dogs to come to us, we do it when they're little, little guys, and we do it with kibble, and we just bend down. And they know when I bend, I've got a little piece of kibble, and he gets his dinner. So if you will teach nonverbal communication, then you have the rope, and then you have the stimulus. Man, you've got three little, you've got three signals there that you're sending to the dog, and so the stimulus on top of the nonverbal and the tug on the rope is just one more layer for mm-hmm. it. But yes, Chris, you're exactly right, man. And then I'll take those little pups on a walk. Let's say we're racing a bear, we got a bear race going on, and my and my mature dogs are out there just screaming down this canyon. Well, this little pup's not big enough to go with them yet, but if he's on the walk with me and I have a leash on my path or whatever, or maybe I just bend down and he comes running to me because he knows what that means. So I bend down and then I give him a little teeny, little teeny stimulus and he comes running and he goes, oh, that stimulus means to come back or that tone means to come back, whichever you decide. Mm-hmm. But if I'm on my walk for five minutes listening to the race and I do one or two of those things, man, yeah, it took, what, 30 seconds for you to do one recall in your, your little walk there? And all those little things are like putting drops of oil in the well. And that well fills up fast when you're, oh, you have two minutes here, one minute there, 30 seconds here. You're going to go on the hunt anyway, so just put that pup, collar him up, 
find you there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do we avoid overdoing it? So I, this is a mistake that I've made in the past. You know, I'm going on this walk, yeah. and every time I see that pup distracted, I have this temptation to teach a recall, and now I've got a, a, right. a pup that won't fire out and go hunting. How do I... How do I overcome that issue? You take one step back and you measure his mental maturity. So it's like you just said a minute ago. Between six and eight months, I'm going to start loading this stuff and taking him with me. Some dogs' mental maturity at two years of age is still eight months of age in their mind. And a lot of that falls back on you and I. Mm -hmm. So um we've got to measure that mental maturity of that dog if he's a if he's an eight-month-old pup and he's a bold rock star and there comes a skunk and you're like no i'm not doing the skunk thing today then yeah you tone him back or you get him back but if he's eight months old and he's scared of the shadow that gun we're not even gonna put we're not even gonna turn that e-collar on so it's a measure of mental maturity on that pup it's that's where the handler has to has to learn and that's where the handler needs to go and learn from one of these guys like Steve Fielder or Chris Powell that have been running hounds their whole <laughs> life and say, hey, Chris, you know, I'm struggling with this. Like, I went out there and I got him, I, you know, I got the e-call on him, but now he's shutting down. What am I doing wrong? You know, and that's where some judgment and some experience and years and years and years of, hey, 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 let me show you. Back up a couple steps, slow down, and let's, you you know, take find those mentors so that, if you're having a bad episode or a bad event, go find those guys that have got 30, 50, 100 years of doing this and say, what the heck am I doing wrong? Because that's going to shortcut the process and say, hey, hey, wait, wait. You know, he's not quite ready for that. I know if I took Chris Powell in the, in the woods and I went for a walk and my dog was shutting down, it'd take him about two minutes to go, hey, hey. Um, and, his, and, he may, and Chris might not say anything, but if I asked Chris and said, Chris, I'm having this issue with my hound. What do I do? And Chris says, you know, I did the same thing. I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm having the same issue. Let's figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, let's let's call Jared. No, no. It's finding those guys that have been doing it for a long time. They're going to help you answer that, right? Yeah. And that that mental maturity of that dog is not always the easiest thing to do. That takes, takes time. It takes practice. It takes working with dogs a lot to go, oh, it's time to turn it on. Oh no, it's time to turn it off. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're afflicted with being a young person, <laughs> you're going to be more impatient. You're going to be more impetuous. You're going, you know, be less tolerant as you, as we get older, uh, you know, we learn to kind of slow down a little bit. And I think it goes back to communication is what you said, Jared, you know, since I've been forced to, well, not really forced, but for the last couple of hounds that I've had, they've lived indoors with me and that communication level goes sky high when you're interacting with the dog all the time, you know, they learn to, to pretty much feel what you're feeling. And one of the most important things that I learned about working with dogs is be in a good mood. And I think it was you maybe that said this, and maybe in the early podcast, is that, you know, my dogs can sense my mood. When I walk out the back door or walk into the room where they are, they know what kind of mood I'm in. I can see it in their eyes. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and, you know, they know that I, if they're messed, if they messed up, you know, I'm going to tell them about it, you know, but, um, the communication thing is so important. And I wish with over the years that I had known some of the things that you're now teaching Jared, because I was one of those guys, when I got an e-collar, I figured the 18 level was the beginning level, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and that was before you got out the number eight shot, you know, and, the and the buggy whip, uh, that was a long time ago. I'm exaggerating. I never went to those extremes, but I probably would have if they'd been available. Um, you know, I can remember the days of my father trying to break a dog from running off game by putting a scented rag in a burlap sack with a drawstring and nudging them with a cattle prod. You know, I mean, that was the only kind of the only methods we had back in those days. You know, it was not uncommon probably back in the early 1900s for bird hunters to break dogs off of rabbits or deer with birdshot. You know, I've heard old timers talk about that. Let them get out there, you know, ways and you know, those up. things are archaic. Yeah, light them up. And, that, you know, those archaic means all went out the window when the Lee brothers uh, started developing, you know, the 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 e-collar. And uh, we've come a long way. But but to me, that when you talk about communication with the dog, and I think that's what this all boils down to, does it not? I think you're right on spot on yeah yeah and patience you know patience is a virtue we hear this all our lives but man it goes a long way in training dogs or at least for me you know i could ramble on here about this pardon yeah yeah an old dog trainer named uh, dave walker up in idaho new plymouth idaho i remember he was down here one day and, I, and he was helping me and he was putting on a seminar and he'd come down and talk to me uh, the day before the seminar. And I'd got to spend a lot of time with Dave. And one time he, he, he was at this time, I think he was 81 or something. He said, Jared, the slower you go, the faster you'll get there. And I thought, what the heck are you talking about, Dave? <laughs> but I have learned that the slower I go with these dogs, the more patience I have. The slower I go in my training, meaning I'm not going out there and expecting everything today, man, the faster they learn, the quicker they retain it, and the better they are. And we get to the end result so much faster because I got the patience. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. slower you go, the faster you'll get there. There's a term we used in law enforcement training uh, for defensive tactics or shooting. If you're teaching somebody to draw and shoot or if you're teaching them to drive, it's, it stands true. Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. So you want to be slow, you want to be smooth, and the speed will come. You will, you will start to see, you will make better uh, gains on what you're trying to achieve if you slow down. And so, so that is true in a lot of different areas of life. Uh, but uh, so let me ask, I had a question here I wanted to talk, yeah. ask you. Let's get back to that attitude because I see it. I've, I've seen this myself. I've even been, I've seen this in myself. I've seen this in others. You know, you've got a dog that should have been broke. And what kind of attitude should I have 
when I push the button. Uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about, we've talked about not only young hunters, let's just talk about uh, the person that, that grabs a button because they're mad that their dog is running a deer. I have to admit that I've been that guy before, and I think we all have. When mm-hmm. you lose your cool and you got that tool in your hand, you're thinking, oh, you little son of a gun. I've had enough of this. And uh, I'm know, either going to kill down, you or you I'm going to break you. Yeah, you lay down the button, you hold the button for six or eight seconds, and the dog goes, oh, crap. And, you know, maybe he doesn't even scream, but he knows, oh, man, I really messed up. And in, in the training, the, you know, you mess up a bunch of dogs. When you become a professional dog trainer, you, you learn how to fix your mistakes real quick. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't put food on the table. So, you know, it's, 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 I tell everybody that I messed up my first three dogs and I fixed them and I messed them up and I fixed them and I messed them up and I fixed them. And that's dog training, right? It's, it is work. It takes time. It takes persistence. Um, yeah. So the mindset I should have when I'm touching that button shouldn't be of anger or frustration. Is it going to happen? Absolutely. If you're human and you're working with animals, you're going to make mistakes. So when that happens, um, you know, don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is what Steve talked about last time. <laughs> You're gonna make mistakes, stupid things are gonna happen. When you do that, don't don't just quit, don't just give up, or don't do don't go with the thought of, well, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just gonna mess him up, so I'll just stay home. So mm-hmm. those two thoughts are, are wrong. You're gonna make those mistakes, but yeah, have the mindset of, okay, I need. To, how am I going to teach this dog? How am I going to mold him? How am I going to converse with him? How am I going to communicate with him so that I teach him that running deer is not what I want? Or running hogs or running porcupines or whatever it is, possums. I don't want him doing that certain task. For me, it's like Emma. Emma's a bird dog, and I've got 20 chickens in my backyard. And people are like, well, you can have chickens and a bird dog? Absolutely. Well, the other day, Emma had been penned up for three or four days. And the other day, a chicken got out of the coop, and he was running around. Next thing I know, I turn around, and Emma's right in the middle of it with that chicken, right? I mean, the chicken's just screaming, and Kinsley's yelling, and Kip's screaming. and Oh, no, Emma's going to get the chicken. She's going to kill it. She's going to kill it. And I just turned to Emma, and I said, axe. And she went, oh, crap. I'm not supposed to do that. Um, but I put the homework in. I, I, that's a long – so back to your your question, Chris. My mindset should not be of anger, but when it happens, don't don't quit, don't give up. Load the dog up, go home, have a cola, have a drink, and come back the next day and, and do better and do a little bit better and be a little bit better and, and don't don't panic, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, I'm sorry, I, I, long long answer to a short question. Man. That's why we're asking you questions. Steve, you got something? Well, I just think that to recap right there or to reinforce what you've been saying, uh, Jared, is, you know, it, on there's going to be so many listeners that are that guy that's used the 18 button and still has a problem and doesn't know what to do. And, and you know, the reset of these dogs, you know, don't give up on the dog. You can reset the dog and to, you know, I, I would hope before we, um, uh, in this podcast, we can at least 
go back and review that just a little bit because I think that's where most of our listeners are on this. Uh, certainly there are those that have a new pup and maybe have not used any collar effectively and need to know all the steps. And I think this is great, but, but I also believe there's a lot of offenders out there and myself among them at times in my career or my life, uh, that, you know, I, I was overzealous with the button. So, you know, the reset is something I think that, that we all need to learn to do and do it effectively. And if there's anything that we can add about that, that's what I'd like to hear. Perfect. Let me give you an example. When we, when we get training uh, dogs here, they come in for a puppy training and they come back for the finished training. There's a point in that they're here for usually 60 days or 90 days to finish them. There's a point in there where the dog becomes what we call sticky. And it's referring to what you're talking about, where they've had either they've been trained too much or they've been overtrained or overstimulated. And basically, they just don't want to hunt. They just kind of stay by me. They don't want to go look for birds. They're just kind of bored or they're, you know, all of that. And I'll tell you what I do. The first thing I do is uh, we come out of the truck and I make sure my mindset's right, like Chris was referring to, making sure that you're right there with the right intentions. The next thing I'll do, I'll go right back to the weight. How did I get that puff? Now this dog's two, right? How did I get this dog excited when he was a puppy? What did I do to get the trigger? What was his trigger or what got him going? Like this particular dog loves pheasants. Perfect. I'll go out in the field. I'll take a pheasant. I'll literally clip one side of his wing and I'll show that dog a pheasant and I won't say a word and I'll toss that pheasant out there and I'll let that dog just bring that hunt drive right back to the forefront. And I'll get him so excited about pheasants. And it might take me two or three pheasants. It might take me three pheasants in one session, three pheasants in another session, three pheasants in another session. But at some point, that dog's going to fire. And he's going to come right back to where he was on the puppy. And if I ignited that flame, if I ignited that hunt drive, then all i got to do is go back and reignite it. So if you've got a dog that you hammered on 18 and he loves coons, he just loves them then you and him are going to go on a coon hunt. You're going to shut your mouth. You're going to have a good time. He might make some mistakes. You're going to keep your finger off the button, and you're going to go coon hunting, and you're going to put some coons in that tree. And when he puts a coon in the tree, you're going to pet him up, and you're going to be the happiest guy on the planet, and you're going to let that dog know it. We call it make him feel like it's Christmas morning. Pet him up, hoot, holler, scream. Shoot that coon out if you need to. Skin it right there if you need to. Whatever you got to do to get that dog ignited again. And if you'll do a couple of hunts, small, short, if you go out and you have a dog that's shutting down and he loves coons and you you put a coon in the tree and he's all jacked up and you're all excited and you shoot that coon out and that dog's like right back to where you want him to be, even though he's got this deer chasing issue, perfect. Load him up, put him in the truck, go home. Let him simmer on that for about two or three days because he's going to go, now that was fun. That's what I like to do. Mm -hmm. I love to hunt. I love to go with Jared. And then you're going to do that about three of my times, and and the fire's going to come back. If you go out and try to correct in that hunt, then he's going to go shut down. He's going to become sticky. So how do I undo sticky or how do I undo hunt drive? I find what triggers that dog what gets his blood boiling and we go do it and we go have fun and it's my job as a handler 
to make sure that episode is nothing but good, 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 good. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my dog starts coming back. He starts coming back. And I might, it might take five months. It might take five months. It might take a, it might take six months. But find out what it is that gets him crazy. If you got to go get a, a buddy that's got a broke dog and you follow that dog to the tree and you get him all jacked up, do that. Uh, whatever it takes. I'm glad you brought that up. Dog firing again. So, so what you're saying is, is if you've got a dog that, that has gotten to that point, we have to go all the way back to leading this dog to the tree and reigniting that fire in that dog. That's right. Cause he's still in there. Mm-hmm. That fire's still there. It's just my job to get the fire back. Okay. I'm agreeing a hundred percent with what you're saying, Jared, from my experience. And I, I've tried to counsel with people about this in the past, you know, take, start the dog over again, you know, and, and forget about the mistakes you made, except to know that you don't want to make those again and, and go back to square one. I think this is, we see this a lot of times with dogs that haven't been hunted at all. Maybe they've been left in the pen for two years or something. Is this dog ruined? Well, no, but, but my advice, and maybe you tell me whether I'm right or wrong with that two-year-old dog, or maybe even a three-year-old that hasn't been hunted is starting like you would that three-month or four-month-old puppy and just go through the basics with them. Is that right? Absolutely. And and, mm-hmm. and we need to manage our expectations, right? A dog that's been held up for two years am i going to go have a successful hunt absolutely not come mm-hmm. on guys that'd be like saying hey uh, steve you haven't swung a golf club in 20 years why don't you go up there and drive this 380 yards off the t1 no problem jerry <laughs> it's just it's not going to happen right <laughs> it's just it's, that muscle memory is not going to be there so our expectations have to be the same you know i think the biggest the biggest fault is usually us our expectation is oh this dog should know this by now well, when you go on five hunts, it doesn't mean he knows it. So true. So true. Well, you know my golf game pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a golfer. But. Uh, Me either, really. Uh, not at all here. So tell us some common mistakes. Do, 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 you, do, you, do you concur, Chris, that if I took that dog that was sicky or shut down, and I let him into a tree that he was all jacked up about. What do you think would happen? Well, you're going to, you're going to teach him the end result. You're going to teach him that that where he is at at that time is what you is where you want him to be. It's not you chasing him off on a deer. The fun is here. This is where the fun's at right here. You're going to get the adrenaline rushes. You're going to you're going to get that excitement here, um, and we used to use a term we've got to teach a dog we've got to teach a dog how to learn and it wasn't uncommon for it and i think keith hyatt we had him on he would agree with this a lot of these dogs that go into police work or military work are two years old when they start their formal training up until that time it has been teaching them how to learn um and and we used to use the term, it's a scientific term, alimimetic behavior. It invokes what's called the mammalian reflex in a dog, the mammal mammal side of it. And it 
it's a deal where uh, when a dog does something well, you lavish them with praise, with, uh, you know, high-pitched speaking. You know, we called it the Mickey Mouse voice. And we start that at a young age with a pup. Good boy, good dog, you know, and you get really excited with them and you you tell them, and when they do something wrong, then you you use that growly voice because that's how mom communicated with that puppy. They are hardwired like that. So, you know, you say at, and you don't say it like at, you say at, and that's a growl. That's a low tone. You're invoking that mammalian reflex in that dog at that point and you're reigniting the things that they're already hardwired to learn and and so my question for you is if i've got a dog that is really i mean we had a bad night last night okay we thought we were making some progress we thought we were really getting there and things just didn't go well so as a trainer is there any benefit to taking a few days off just getting the dog out and just loving on them and reestablishing that communication with them. Absolutely, huh? Yes. Yeah. And and it's our job, just like you said, it's our job to teach that dog how to learn, the process of learning, learn how to learn is what we talked about. Mm-hmm. And if I've done, if I've taught him how to learn and I've taught him that him and I are best buddies, then what better way to reset the button? You know, you know how you used to reboot your Mac or reboot your PC when it froze up. You you just reach down and hit the reboot button because you knew it wasn't going to come back. Mm-hmm. So with these dogs, you got to hit the reboot button. You had a bad, you bad had a bad hunt last night. Great, take about two or three days, do a little bit of loving, do some walks, do eroding, and regain his confidence in you and the bond that you guys have. And then show him, you know, hey, let's go have a good hunt. And and show him how to do it. Teach him how to do it. I think there's nothing better than creating that bond so strong that if I walk him in on a tree and show him, hey, this is what I want. I have a dog named Todd. Todd's kind of the goofiest hound dog I've got. Todd will do anything to please me. Took me a year to, to to gain that dog's confidence. A whole year. He was a, a, another guy's colt. Took me a whole year to get his confidence. Right. Once I got that dog's confidence, he will give me everything in the tank. Mm-hmm. He will coat a bear like nobody's business. When I get to the tree, if I take two minutes, ten seconds, and pet Todd up, that dog will. He will do anything for me. So same thing with your guys' dogs. If you have a bad hunt, take a step back, take a couple of days off, and just just regain that bond, regain that confidence. I think that is nothing better to hit the reboot button is to spend a little bit of time and regain that confidence. On the flip side, if you didn't spend the time to get the confidence in the bond, you're going to struggle in all of your aspects of training. Yeah. To drop a dog out of the drop the tailgate and not have any bond or any communication skills with that dog and expect him to go do everything. It's not going to happen. He's going to chase deer. He's going to run and find the first thing that smells good and go have fun. Right. Right. You know, this, all of this flies in the face of what a lot of hunters today, especially coon hunters are doing out there in the woods and uh you know they seem to feel that they need a dog that 
just the only desire that he has well, it's twofold. Number one, to get away from that hunter as quickly as he can. And number two, find a coon somewhere that he can tree. And, you know, no communication with the dog other than that, you know. And without going into all the details of how they do that, you know, I think that they're really missing the boat. I know they're missing the boat for coon hunters like me who do it for fun, for pleasure, for the, you know, the excitement of going out there and seeing a dog do what that dog was bred to do, which has always been the thing with me. My friend Nubbin Moore and I were having a conversation uh, yesterday about, uh, you know, hunting with uh, some guys, and they're just great guys. They really are. But they go out and they enjoy a lot of conversation when they're hunting. You know, they enjoy getting together. They're a family. They do. They have a great time. Wonderful. But they're not listening to the dogs, you know. Nothing in our old school. We like to get away, uh, get away from the crowd a little bit so we can hear what the dogs are doing, you know? So, uh, and that's, that's the pleasure of this sport for me is dog work, seeing good, consistent dog work. And, uh, so I think this communication issue was so very important for a guy like me and I'm learning, you know, I've been around a long time, but I'm still learning and the dogs are teaching me and guys like you, Jared, I was just sitting here thinking, man, I would have paid $500 for this seminar that we've had here for the last uh, hour, hour and a half. Something you might think about Jared, <laughs> but you know, yeah. you, there's such good information here, just invaluable information. Great questions, Chris, you know, keeping this thing moving, but man, this has been rich for me. Let's let's recap a little bit. I want to I want to recap because we have tried to set this up as an informative podcast, at least the part about the e collar. Um, yes. But let's let's recap a little bit, you know, and and um, talk about the communication, you know, because from what I'm hearing, you say Jared, and and you do this for a living. Um, I want a dog that that handles. I want a dog that that. Um, I can I can walk out of the woods with it heel. It's not dragging me around, but can still perform at a high level. And so basically what you've said is this is nothing more than me. If I don't want my dog to run a deer, then he needs to know at the sound of the tone that that means stop what you're doing and come back to me. Is that what I'm hearing? You're exactly right, yeah. And to get him to do that on the deer, I have to do a bunch of preliminary work before I get there. Mm-hmm. Dog training is, is yeah, it's it's it takes time, right? It takes time and it takes repetition and patience, and it's one of those things that it's kind of a lost art because it's a lot, a lot of time, mm-hmm. a lot of reps, a lot of prep. Yep, you're exactly right. How important is consistent? I want a dog that'll give me everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. How important is consistency? Doing the same things the same way. Very important. I would say it's right up there, right at the top of the list. Um, I've got to be very consistent in the way that I communicate and my expectations, uh, the training, you know, even recall, even using the same tone when you want a dog to come back. We talked. You talked about tone today. Um, when I want, when Emma's getting in trouble, it's a gruff at. 
when Emma does something right, I tell her, yeah, that's it, you know, and I use a different tone. Mm-hmm. Um, that needs to be consistent. My tones need to be consistent. Dogs are masters of body language, masters of body language. So they can lead you in two seconds. If you're coming at them to get them off of the, the coon tree, or, you know, if you're, if, they're, if you're coming at the dog to get him off of the possum tree, he already knows before you get there that you're pissed. <laughs> so body language is huge. Yeah, he he looks, he glances over and goes, son of a gun, here come. He is one mad, you know, and then he's going to cower and goes, try to scoot away from you. Body language is huge. Uh, repetition and consistency are tools of the dog training world that you have to learn. Okay, uh, I've keep got an, Chris, keep, keep recapping. Yep. Yeah, I've got another question. So I'm standing out here in the dark, and uh, you know I've got this race going on, and I can't prove that it's a deer, but it doesn't really sound like a coon. I've done I've done my recall work. Do I push Do I push the tone button and, and a stem button at that point? Uh, that's one thing that I see see myself struggling with, and I've seen other other houndsmen struggling with it's like well you know i don't really i really can't say that that's that's a deer a coyote or a fox or a rabbit or whatever um it kind of looks like it on my garment screen but i'm not sure i really want to push the button am i if i've done my homework on recall am i hurting anything by by going ahead and saying hey why don't you come back here I don't think so. I think you can shut down a race pretty quick. And I use, I use tone. I use tone in that scenario when I'm not at 99%, you know, I'm about 60% sure it's kind of trash. I'll just tone my dogs and most of them will come back and go, yep. Oh yeah. We were, um, on the flip side of that, I had a lion race last, a lion, uh, struck a lion and they were taking it through some country and they were going places. And in my mind, I'm thinking this, there's no way this cat, went up here and then I got him jumped and then there's no way he came back across this main road and treed over here. There's no way these dogs are wrong, but I, I resisted the urge to tone them back and I gave him the time to work it out. He sure enough, they put a line in the tree. And so, you know, I, I think there's time. It's a balancing act because mm-hmm. I, I've literally, I've, I've made dogs sticky I've like, I've made my own dog sticky because I'm always shutting them down and I'm not showing any confidence in them. I did that for a year. You know, I was like, oh no, I think this is a this is a fox, so I'd shut down the race. And then this is this, and I shut down the race. And this is this, and I shut down the race. Mm. And then I learned that if I shut them all down, it isn't very long before they don't want to hunt. And so, you know, it's it's a balancing act of knowing when to call them home and when to let them go. And I think that's where you, you listen to those wise, wise men that have spent years in the woods. But yeah, I don't, I don't see anything. If you've done your proper training, there's no reason why you can't tone a dog back and shut down a race and not have the dog go, Oh, I'm not going to go hunting now because you're just going to tone me home. Yeah. So I see a lot of value in that. Say they're running towards a, a road. Okay. I don't care. I don't care if they're running a, a, a coon track or a line track or a bear track, if they're running towards an interstate, I need to shut down the race at that point. And, yeah. and so for their own safety. Now, w- when they come back to you, what's your reaction? You've, you've toned them and maybe you had to give them a stem to shut that down. They're coming 
you know, they're hauling it across the field, coming to you. Your reaction when they get there? What is your is a professional dog trainer? How do you how do you greet that dog when they come back? If it's a safety recall, I cut the heck out of them. Uh huh. If it's and, and, and I'll be and I'll be honest, most of the times if a dog comes to me, I'd say ninety percent of the time or ninety nine percent of the time, I am not going to get frustrated with that dog mm-hmm. because what in my mind he was out there doing whatever his job was, and I toned him and told him to come back then I better reward him for coming back because he did what I asked him to do. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I've seen, I've seen, I've been in the woods with some guys that have toned the dog back and they grab a stick and they get to whipping. And I'm like, that dog's, that dog's confused. Wait a minute. You asked me to come back. I come back and now you're pissed. Yeah. Now <laughs> like, I'm going to take it. Now what, I'm going to take you, a whipping. A exactly. Yeah. So, so what did you want me to do? Which one did you want? Did you want me to keep running the game or did you want me to come back? And dogs are very intelligent, but they're not that smart. Right. Right. They, in their, their mind, their mind, it's like, Hey, the last, the last communication you gave me was come home. So by golly, I came home. So why are you pissed? Right. Right. And, and I, I, I think we're doing more harm than good by pulling the whipping stick out mm-hmm. yeah so so you at that point do you restart them you put them in the truck go down the road and try it again um you know you, you, your dog came back you 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 were down on one knee you were happy to see him you're rewarding them for obeying the last communication you have with them uh i i envision if i try to walk the dog back in there then he's going to go try to find what he was doing last but but what do you do yeah. If if it's let me take a step back. If I'm training, if I'm training and the deer crossed the road and I let those pups out like I was roading yesterday and the deer went across the road, when I toned all those pups back, I didn't I didn't pet them up. Okay. I didn't pet them up. I got them all back, and I didn't say a word to them. In fact, I gave a little uh, and they went, oh yeah, crap, yeah, you're right, we were messing up, and I get back in the buggy and we go. Mm-hmm. And we just go back to work. If if it's a so if it's a if it's a hundred percent positive that that dog's running trash, I I tone them back. I don't whip them. I don't get mad, but I don't give them the love. They're, okay. Right? I just say, hey, get in the truck. Let, let's go. Get in the truck. Let's go. We're shutting this down. And they can read my body language, and they kind of go, crap. Yeah, we were messing up. They get in the <laughs> truck. We go down the road. We find another track. And then we, you know, the next track that I try to make sure we're is a positive, and we make sure we're on the right track, going the right way. Yeah, yeah. If it's a safety issue, if it's safety, if it's a safety, um, you know, it's 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 a reward. I'm going to say, hey, good job. You know, give them a little pat. But don't 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 be afraid to just load up your dogs and go. Mm-hmm. They don't. Not every time do they need your love, right? If they're out there screwing up and you tone them back, it's like get your butt in the truck, let's go. And he knows, he knows he was screwing up out there. And so he knows, oh, yep, yep, he caught me. And it's like, yep, get in the truck. And you don't need to love him up then, but you don't need to get on him either. You know, either way, you just kind of, just if it's a negative, it's 100%, that dog was running trash. Tone, get your butt in the truck, let's go. And that's all it is. And the dog goes, crap, I knew it. He knew it, he knew it, I knew it, messed up. And you go to the next one. Sounds like my son, Jake. The games I've played with him, 
You know, you show up at school and he's in the principal's office. You're not happy because he complied and went to the principal's office. He knows when I walk in that, that I wasn't happy with him being there, but it doesn't mean I don't love him. Steve, you got something? Well, I just wanted to ask uh, Jared uh, how much uh, store he puts in. There's a universal opinion, I think, among hounds people, especially coon hunters, uh, that we always try to to end the hunt on a good note. You know, if the dog messes up, makes a couple of slick trees, we're not happy about it. Maybe we have to tone them on that tree or scold them away or whatever. Uh, you know, it's pretty universal that coon hunters think, well, we got to make that one more drop and hopefully tree a coon and end this hunt on a good note. Uh, do you think that's necessary, effective? Is it an old wives' tale? What's your opinion on that, Jared? If you can guarantee me the next one's a positive, then yes. Do you remember, if you go back and listen to our first episode, I talked to you about Huck, and, I, and Huck was having right. a bad day. And right. I tried to push through it. Remember, here I am, a pro trainer. This is what I do for a living. I'm thinking, no way he's going to screw up the next one. There's just no <laughs> way. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. And, I, and if you remember, at the end of that training session, it was just a bad day. So if you're having a bad day or it's a couple of slick trees, man, just sometimes you just got to chalk it up and go home. If you, if you can, if you can, if you can set it up so that you end on a good note, that's always a positive, right? But let's be realistic. That doesn't happen every day in the real world. And especially if you're hunting big game in the West, right? It's not like you spent two days trying to find that lion track. It's not like I'm just going to go down the road and 10 minutes later find another lion track. Right. <laughs> Does it happen yeah. all the time? No, it's not. That's not reality. So. Well, I guess what you're saying to me there is, is I tree a coon with this plug that I've got. I should turn around and go home, right? <laughs> that plug you've got, you better you celebrate every coon you tree. Yeah. <laughs> you, in other words, <laughs> I, I shouldn't push my luck, right? <laughs> no, but I hear well, what you're some, saying. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that when you're starting with young dogs. If you mm. can have one little successful hunt and you put him up, and then another little successful hunt and mm -hmm. you put him up, oh yeah, and the third one's a little successful hunt and you put him up, guess what? He's just learned. He just yeah. learned how to learn how to be successful, and mm -hmm. he doesn't know how to mess up. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, this is what I do. This is how it works. I go out there, I tree a coon, get petted up, money. And yeah. then it's like, hey, let's see if we can do two tonight, then three, then three, then four. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, Hey man, this is this is awesome, right? There's a lot of truth to going out and having one successful hunt, thirty minutes an hour. You know, we do those things, and and so I won't get off on a tangent, but there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to a successful hunt and put it away. Right, I like it. I like it. I do too. Good um, stuff. What about um, you know? Say you've got a dog that you are going home. If if you are if you are set on let's end this on a successful hunt, maybe it wasn't a disaster and it wasn't a situation where he needs to think about the error of his ways in the kennel for a few days. Uh, maybe it was uh, uh, something like uh, treeing a slick tree or, or something like that. How do you feel about, you know, setting up a, a situation where he can be successful? You know, and I'll give you an example. <clears throat> you walk to a slick tree, you know you're sure. frustrated. You know if you turn him loose again, you're probably going to end up with another slick that night. So can right. you make can you make the walk back to the truck a successful situation? 
hey, he does a good job healing all the way back to the truck. There you go. Yep. Ending on a positive note doesn't necessarily have to be game in a tree. It could be a nice hill job. It could be, hey, we're going to go back and load and unload. and Whatever it is, you know, it could be a, it could be anything. Any, any on a positive note could simply be just a, a nice calm walk. You and him enjoying the night, uh, work on a couple recalls, a little bit of hill work, and uh, maybe you work on your tone training. Uh, maybe he's been a little rusty on his tone, or maybe you got a young dog and he doesn't know what tone means yet. And he tones and comes back to you, man, you Christmas morning. You just change the whole feel of, mm-hmm. oh, crap, that was a slick tree. And you just change it to, hey, you know, that was a slick tree. That sucked. Let's go do this and end on this positive note. Absolutely. That could be your positive. So we end we end the correction or whatever we're going to do at the time that it needs to be made. We don't carry that all the way home and, you know, make make the punishment last for for the rest of the night. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And let's, yeah. And let's be realistic. The next morning he's going to wake up and he's not. And if you come out pissed the next morning, he's going to say, what the heck's wrong with that guy? Why are you pissed? Get over it. <laughs> I mean, he, he's not, he's not even, he's not connecting those dots. Right. Right. His ability to retain that information is not like, well, two nights ago, I slipped tree and Jared's still pissed about it. No, he's coming. I'm coming out of the house, and he's going, "Man, I wonder why he's pissed." And he's wagging his tail, saying, "Hey, let's go hunting. Let's go." And that dogs don't have the mental capacity to to connect those dots. No way. Yeah, and they're smarter than we give them credit, but they can't remember the hunt two nights ago. Can, can That's I, right. Go ahead, Steve. No, no, I'm just going to say, you know, you enable the dog, the dog to win. You know, to be a winner at the end of the night. You know, and what I'm hearing you say, Jared, is whether it's just being a good boy, leading back, loading, um, you know, whatever. Uh, he's a winner uh, when it's all said and done. I think you're exactly right. I, a wise man told me once that um, you got to look at that relationship between your dog and you as a bank account. And if you've got enough credits in there, then you can make a debit. But if you're always debiting that account, it isn't very long before it's overdrawn. Well, right. you know what? If it's overdrawn, he's going to shut down. He's not going to hunt. He's not going to do any of those things. So, yeah, yeah before- if, if you had a slick tree, put it, put put some credits in that account on the way home. You know, yeah, put some credits in there. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, and I'll, I, I'm not trying to to teach from my own playbook here, but I I want to see if this is credible or not okay maybe if i'm if i'm buried back in the hills a mile and a half i'm not going to make that walk miserable all the way back to the truck after after a slick tree or a possum tree or or whatever not that not that any of my dogs would ever stoop to any of that but you know i'm not going to spend a a, a, the next 40 minutes (laughs) punishing that dog all the way back to the truck now if i'm treed on the side of the road and it's not it's not uh, uh, that long of a walk. It's not going to be this pleasant and cheery walk all the way back to the truck. I'll no. get them back to the truck. I'll load them up. I'll take them down the road. I'll stop at the ball diamond up here in Bear Branch. Get them out. Work on some heel. Make it a good positive experience. He already knew what happened back there. I'm changing his location. Now I'm working on something totally different here. And we've restored our dog. 
spot on, man. Spot on. Okay. All right. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I've done I've done a few hikes into those those uh, you know six point four miles from the road, and you get in there, and uh, the the old dogs you know the old dogs have the the bear tree to where it's supposed to be, and the young dogs are over here messing off. And I'll walk in there and I'll tell them those young dogs, and it's like I don't say much to them. I don't have to say a lot. They just look at me and go crap and mess up right, and and so. You know, I'll walk for 20 or 30 minutes with them going, oh, crap, we messed up. And that's okay. That's all right. But, and then we'll get to the bear tree and we'll be good. And we'll pet them up when we get to the tree. Mm-hmm. But if, like you're saying, Chris, if, if it's right there on the road, there's no reason, you know, if it's 300 yards off the road and it's a, a mess up, it's like, Tone, get your butt in the truck, let's go. You're done. And he goes, man, that sucks. And, that three or four minute walk back to the truck doesn't need to be cheerful. Yeah, put his butt in the truck. You hit it just right on, man. And then you drive for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and then you stop and you're like, all right, let's put some credits back in the bank. Nice. Spot on. Spot you on. bet. Steve, what else we got? Hey, man, I'm just soaking this up like a sponge, man. It's good stuff, uh, very good stuff. I wish we could go longer, but we'll uh, hopefully we'll have Jared on again, and yeah. uh, we can uh, continue to pick yeah, his one, brain. One thing we could do is, is uh, you know, you guys could follow Hounds and XP on social and submit some questions to them, and uh, maybe do a little Q and A next time we get together, and you know, that's a way that that people can reach out. That would, yeah. be, that would be neat. You sure. A specific situation or a specific question that you're struggling with, you know, send that to Chris or Steve or get on the Hounds and XP on Instagram or Facebook or the group. Drop your questions in there. Say, hey, I listen to the podcast with Jared. I'm, I'm having this issue. Drop your questions in there, and the next time we get together, or maybe we maybe we need to do uh, like a uh, just a straight Q and A kind of rapid fire, Chris, where it's just boom, 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 and and. Uh, because I like to talk a lot, so sometimes you know that that form might work good well as right. well. What about? Um, let's talk about where people can can find best gun dogs on the internet. I know I'll tell people where they can find it. Uh, from our side is on our on our website www.houndsmanxp.com. If you go to Friends of Houndsman XP, then you will find. Uh, several people that have have really become good friends of ours and uh, you can find jared's logo there best gun dogs and a link to his website and that'll give you access to all his contacts and things like that uh, directly to jared but tell tell our audience where else they can find you yeah if you go to that's a great location www.bestgundogs.com there's a little uh, form in there. You can ask me anything, and just you drop it drops in a form, and it sends me an email. Email is a great way. Um, I'm really active on Instagram. You can uh, send me a message on Instagram, and uh, I can reach out to you that way. And then if we need to follow up with a phone call, we're always open, man. We're here to help in any way we can. I I feel very blessed and fortunate to have had great mentors in my life and men that have taken time to teach me the things that I know. Uh, you know, have made made themselves available. So if there's something I can do to help any of you, just reach out. Great, great. Well, Jared, I want to I want to tell you thanks for for sharing your knowledge. 
I know that you charge people for this type of training, but you're willing to come on the podcast and share your experience and, and your knowledge about dog training for free with, with our listeners. Uh, I also want to applaud you for taking the effort to step up with Freedom Hunters and use your time and um, uh, repay America's heroes and our warriors for the, the the sacrifices and the things they've done for our freedoms here in the country. So thanks for your friendship, thanks for your time, and thanks for your patriotism. Appreciate you guys. You're doing awesome. Steve? We need we need you guys we need you out now more than ever. Well, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Steve, you got any closing thoughts and just roll it right into our sign off. Well, just to say that uh, Jared is uh, an excellent addition to this program and uh, being on twice now, and hopefully we can have him back again because he, he has a great storehouse of information to share to make our lives a lot easier. And with that, I'll just uh, say, as we always do, as we wrap one of these shows up is, first of all, I want you to put that e-collar on your hounds and make sure it's nice and snug, okay? Get your finger all uh, that twitchy uh, thumb there. Just kind of, you know, stick it in your pocket. And we're going to turn loose in this track. And when we do, you follow your hound and I'll follow mine.